0: everyone to Episode 74, Diabetes and Drug Discovery. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James. This is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen?
1: I'm all right. I'm recovering from the summer. It's over and recovering from Starting a new school year, there's a lot going on, but somehow like the fall, I get depressed, I guess. Something's over, something new's beginning, but I'm more caught up in the summer ending, I guess. I'm a bit sad.
0: Yeah, it was a kind of crazy Labor Day hit, and it was like all the trees suddenly were turning the golden hues, and the light is a little different, and I've been looking around, and it was like this cutoff this year that I don't think I've ever noticed before, where it was like, bam, summer's over.
1: Snap out of it! Although you you wouldn't know in New York, it's literally (laughs) going to be a hundred degrees today. Oh my God!
0: Well, enjoy that air conditioning a little bit longer. (laughs) It's time for us to get down to business. Make sure all of you engage with us on our channels, and the easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com, where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools, like signing up for our newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, we're going to email you when a new show is released, and that's going to contain the links to all the papers we discussed during the show, as well as detailed show summaries. And that makes your life so much easier. Also, you can sign up for our Stem Cell Forum. We've created the first forum for all things Stem Cell called Stem Cell Chat. So go sign up for free and join the conversation. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter stem cell podcast on facebook and subscribe to our youtube channel so today we've got a great show our guest for episode 74 is dr shubing chen a stem cell biologist and faculty member at weill cornell medical college over there with you dalen
1: represent
0: that's right you passing her in the hallways
1: oh yeah we're good friends awesome
0: so we're going to talk with shubing about her work and her latest paper regarding stem cells and diabetes. But first, it's time for the Roundup. Are you ready?
1: Yeah, I'm ready, Kiki. Let's get on with it. Good. The Science Roundup is sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science research ba- brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, ToCris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide re- stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents, ...that will optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to StemCellPodcast.com and click on the banner for more info. All right, Kiki, you're going to start today with some science breath stories.
0: I am. I have so much science breath for everybody. Up first, soap. We all like to keep clean, right? Washing our hands is something we're told to do after doing anything. You touch something, you got to wash your hands. Go outside, wash your hands. You don't want to transmit disease? Wash your hands, right? This is one of the things that gets drummed into us from our early, early days of life. Once upon a time, manufacturers decided that they were going to start incorporating antibacterial compounds into soaps because, I mean, hey, what's better than just soap to get rid of bacteria and other microbes, little things that cause disease? Well, what about things that kill those things? What about things that get rid of them? Make that soap even better. So things like triclosan, triclocarban, all sorts of compounds started being added by manufacturers to soaps. And we started buying it up and buying up all their marketing that said this soap is better than regular soap. But you know what? All of the evidence was to the contrary. There was really no evidence of benefit of these antibacterial agents in research. Like pretty much the research that everyone did showed that soap, just the act of physically using soap to break up biofilms and break up oils on your skin and wash them off physically, that that was pretty much as good as the soap with antibacterial agents. And the antibacterial agents, there was sparse evidence, but evidence all the same, that is actually causing bacterial change and resistance to these antibacterial compounds, making the antibacterials less useful in the places where they're needed, like in hospitals. So the evidence has been racked up. And finally, finally, the FDA, after a time period of a couple of years, they asked companies back in 2013 to submit data on safety and efficacy of these antibacterials in 2013. They finally have finished their deliberations. The FDA has said no more. They have banned 19 active ingredients in these soaps. They've given manufacturers a year to get rid of them. So just stop buying the products that are still out there on the shelves. Just use regular soap. It's better for you. It's better for people, life in general. It's good.
1: Regular soap is great. Regular soap is great. It's fine. Good for the FDA. Woo-hoo! I love that they did this. And this isn't even the hygiene hypothesis stuff, right? This is like not mm-hmm. like, oh, being too clean. is right. It's just it flat out doesn't work better than regular soap.
0: Yep. That's basically what it is. They found no evidence of a benefit.
1: I can remember all the ads, too. Kills 99.9999% of bacteria. You know, how can you not buy that stuff? But I guess... No, oh, you want to. You're not going to anymore. You won't find it. Yeah, so use your soap...
0: And also alcohol-based hand sanitizers are perfectly fine as well. So if you're going to use a hand sanitizer, just one with alcohol in it is one that's going to work.
1: Although a minor point, Kiki, I'm sorry to interrupt your science breath, but I just heard a story. Too much of that hand sanitizer stuff is not good too. Right. Because it displaces the good bacteria, which can compete for the other bacteria. You know, having no bacteria is not necessarily a good thing. Just putting that in there.
0: I think that's a good thing to put in there.
1: All right. I'm done.
0: Make people think. This is what we're going to do. And you know what? There's been a lot of talk about people who think, you know, that people who are highly intelligent tend to curse more often than other people that, you know, there's all sorts of stories going around. And there's a new one about cursing, a book written by a cognitive scientist named Benjamin Bergen. He talks about cursing and what it reveals about who we are.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. So in his work, he uh, has looked at these taboo words and categorized them and found that there's pretty much in Western nations four categories of cursing. There's the cursing that is praying. So you're using religious names or words in non-religious ways, in secular ways. There are words related to fornicating words related to excreting, and there are
1: slurs. Oh my God, this is a great book. I I know,
0: yeah, I want to read this book. So there are four categories of curses. And so another aspect of these curse words is that they don't only kind of sound obscene, they feel obscene when they're spoken. And curse words usually start and end with hard consonants as opposed to softer sounding vowels. And he did a, a study in which he had participants compare words that ended in consonants, but that were not curse words and kind of rate them as to how they felt. And so participants rated words like "scoom." As being worse or more profane than scoo. Can
1: you use that in a sentence, please? <laughs> Go
0: scoom yourself.
1: <laughs> well, scoo is like cute. And scoo!
0: Like, oh, scoo!
1: Exactly. "Scoom" is gross.
0: <laughs> there are grammatical rules to profanity, and sentences need to have subjects, and there are different grammar variants for different purposes in swearing. So there's like FU, F-ing, you know, you can probably come up with your own variant. Scoom you, Scooming. <laughs> and he's critiqued studies as well, saying that exposure to cursing is bad for kids. You know, and this is the same kind of stuff that's like, oh, kids who watch who play video games are going to be more aggressive. It's this similar kind of research. And so he says that kids are actually more resilient to profanity than they're given credit for. And so
1: that's a huge relief for me. I gotta Yeah. See. For
0: parents who maybe have the curse jar where you drop a quarter or a dollar every time you say a bad word, you know, don't really worry about that because it's not that that is the issue. It's stuff that really it's the words that are more slurs. That are the problem. So when kids hear their parents or other individuals making derogatory comments about other groups of people, it leads to those kids keeping their distance from them and not being as open to the different groups of people. And so also kids who were called anti-gay slurs by other middle school peers report really high levels of anxiety and depression. So it's not all the words that aren't necessarily bad. It's the words that address people in a negative and judging way. Mm. And so it's the intention more than the content. And kids know the intent. They can get the intent. Kids are smart.
1: That makes sense. That sounds, yeah. That's a fascinating book. I got to have a look at yeah. it. When you said a book about curses, I thought it was just going to be a, a book with like George Carlin all the curses that ever existed, but this is actually fascinating.
0: It is. The humanity of cursing. Oh. <laughs> right? And then a couple of stories. Also, we have to keep up on our Zika news, right? Of
1: course.
0: Right. Uh, a couple of stories. The worst one, I guess, is that Zika has been found in 80s Egyptian mosquitoes to be passed to the Next generation. So mom mosquitoes infected with Zika pass Zika to at least one out of every 290 lab offspring. Mm. (sighs) This is reported in the Journal of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. And now this is lab offspring and not in the wild. So studies in the wild are a lot more difficult to do. So we don't really know how this actually happens. Out In the real world, but at least in the lab, it's been seen to be passed between generations, which is something that will help to keep the virus circulating in between cold or dry spells that kill off the adults because the the babies are still waiting to be born. And Mm. so it helps keep it going into the next generation. And this has been shown also for other viruses that are related like dengue, West Nile and yellow fever causing viruses has not been shown, though, for the transmission of Aedes albopictus, a different species of Zika spreading mosquito.
1: So you're telling me even when the cold weather comes and all the adult mosquitoes kind of phase out, that we're going to have a latent pool of eggs with Zika just waiting there for the next... Yep. Warm flush. Oh, man. So that's not good news. That's really not good news.
0: Not good news, even as mosquito control, mosquito abatement officials in Miami Beach have sprayed for Zika at Miami Beach. Zika has been found, tested in samples at Miami Beach, and it was an area where officials had set up traps to investigate the cases of local transmission Within Miami Beach, dun, 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 they found it. It's circulating, so they sprayed. It was uh, the spraying was originally scheduled for earlier, but people had a lot of concerns about it, and so they didn't want it. A lot of people petitioned to not have the spraying happen, but the officials said the compound that they're using, naled. Has been uh, used since the 1950s, and so there's really no reason to be concerned about the effects of this insecticide on human health and the environment, especially since they're really not using that much. It's a minimal amount, two tablespoons per acre, according to CNN, and the aerial spraying has been used all over the United States, and uh, it breaks down in water and sunlight. And if Zika is such a concern, then we should really move to do something about it. So uh, the spraying went on as planned, so hopefully it'll be reduce the Zika prevalence that's uh, been reported.
1: That's the real question. Is it going to work? I mean, choose the lesser evil, but I, well, I hope this lesser evil is going to be effective in combating that awful evil that is Zika. We'll have to see.
0: I know. Yet to be seen. But the CDC does not currently expect Zika to... Transmit, transmit widely across the United States, it will probably stay within, because of environmental and ecological factors, probably stay within the southern areas for the most part. We'll see.
1: will <sighs> keep our fingers crossed.
0: Yeah. And then my final story, researchers from India, from the Indian Institute of Technology in Bombay, have been looking at Streptococcus B. Bacteria and Streptococcus group B has been found widely. 20 to 30 percent of pregnant women worldwide have this bacterium within their vaginal canal. And the question is, how is it involved in possible disease and pregnancy complications? So, until now, this bacterium has been thought to be pretty benign. It was thought that it really wasn't there causing any problems. It's there in 20, 30% of people, but what's it doing? They didn't think much. These researchers found that it secretes protein-filled balloons. You know, it has, I don't think they're balloons really, but <laughs> vacuoles filled with caustic proteins that can actually travel from the vagina to the uterus and cause inflammation and That inflammation can weaken the amniotic sac. This was reported in PLOS pathogens. So strep B can be a problem during pregnancy, but they didn't know what it was exactly. These balloons, and now they know it's these balloons that are potentially involved, these little vacuoles that are probably involved in it. They trigger cell death and they degrade the collagen in the amniotic sac, and that causes the inflammation. And when that, when the amniotic sac is damaged, that can lead to premature birth and stillbirth. And they injected just these little sacks of proteins. They got them and isolated them and injected them into pregnant mice. And all of the pups, well, not all, but almost all of the pups either died in utero or were delivered prematurely. So this hasn't been shown to be the cause in humans, but In this mouse model, it was directly correlated with uh, the stillbirth and uh, premature birth. So uh, the researchers say this emphasizes a need to develop an approved vaccine against strep B. Antibiotics are taken by pregnant women who are positive for strep between 35 and 37 weeks, but that antibiotic regime is not really enough because the bacteria can return
1: come back worse than ever, presumably, with all the antibiotic resistance.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So it's either find a way to stop the production of these protein sacs or find a vaccine to get rid of strep B entirely.
1: Hey, vaccine. Sounds like a good approach. Another vaccine on the market. Another billions of dollars for some pharmaceutical company.
0: Yeah. But that's my last really uplifting story. <laughs> What do you have?
1: Pretty good. You're pretty good. A lot of bad news, but also some promise. I just want to start with a a bit of a lead, which is a nice maybe segue between last episode, you know, the bench to business and this episode of the whole diabetes and the, the genetic engineering to find cures. So there was an interesting story about Doug Melton. And actually, Dr. Chen, who's going to be on the uh, on show today, came out of Doug Melton's lab. And I think he's a great story in stem cell research, uh, a sad but also inspiring story of a research who firsthand had an experience Was you know when his kids were new, newborn six months sequentially, one then the next years later were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And he shifted his entire research angle from studying frog embryogenesis and development to embryonic stem cells, right? In the, in the beginning, when they were first derived. And he the story generally just describes his track from diagnosis to shifting gears into a new research field towards his development of new technology, which is finally culminating in a private venture, a company uh, that he started to try and bring the treatment to market. I think it's just an interesting background, and it kind of, for the layperson in particular, tells a story of how stem cell therapies come to market and why it's taking so long, and will they ever really do the trick? Are they ever really going to be a cure? I think it provides some nice context for that. So I'll leave the link on the website there. You guys can get into that. I just wanted to lead with that before I get into the science. The next story I have, any comments on that? Kiki, if you want to talk about that. Did you see that story in the MIT Technology Review?
0: No, I didn't.
1: Oh, man, That's it's great. great. I'll, I'll send it to you. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it, I think, with Shubin when she comes on as well. Yeah. But now I'm going to get into the science. I, I, uh, I just want to float that. Another theme for this show, I think, is this idea, again with Shubin, is, is this idea of how do we understand disease, how do we model disease? And this is a great example of that. And there's another story a bit later that I'm going to come around to. But this one is about frontotemporal dementia. Okay? So frontotemporal dementia, it's the second most common form of presenile dementia. It can cause changes in personality and behavior. And there's no effective treatment for this because the mechanisms are really poorly understood of how, how it manifests. But there is a a lot known about it. In particular, it's known that mutations in this protein, it's called microtubule-associated protein tau, MAPT. Mutations in this gene are responsible for a substantial fraction of frontotemporal dementia. But the way that these mutations cause frontotemporal dementia also remains poorly understood. So a group in Shanghai in the lab of Fen Biao Gao They generated and characterized a lot of induced pluripotent stem cell lines that they got from patients that had this mutation and another mutation in the tau protein. And they compared them with control iPS cells, differentiating both these groups into cortical neurons, which are the neurons that are affected in frontotemporal dementia. And they found that these MAPT mutations, they don't affect differentiation of the neurons, But what they do is they increase or they destabilize the ratio of the tau proteins. And this leads to the patient neurons, the affected neurons, having significantly higher levels of two particular proteins, MMP, matrix metalloproteinase 9, and MMP2. And these cells that have the upregulated MMP9 and 2 were more sensitive to stress-induced cell death. So it looks like this mutation may be causing an upregulation of these matrix metalloproteinases, and this is leading to increased sensitivity to death. Not only that, but if they inhibit these MMP9 and MMP2, if they inhibit those proteins in the neurons, they were protected uh, moderately from this stress-induced death. And then if you added back recombinant protein for the MMP9 and MMP2, it was sufficient to decrease survival. So it looked like By, you know, zeroing in on this pathway, the researchers may have found a a nice target um, that can be used as a, you know, a therapeutic target for patients with frontotemporal dementia, uh, specifically those with these MAPT mutations. So it's it's another great case, and we're going to come around to it when we talk with Shubin about how we're understanding disease by using stem cells and more specifically the genetically affected stem cells and other cell lines.
0: Yeah, I think something like this is keep working on it because I need somebody to zero in on how to make my brain work when I'm old. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Dementia and the frontotemporal dementia, I mean, that's like one of the things that I'm most afraid of getting old. And so if there's a treatment for that, for those people who are genetically predisposed or for environmental triggers that trigger things like that, I mean, oh my gosh.
1: Yeah, it would affect a huge population. We all feel it. We're huge. End of that age. I'm starting to get a little demented myself. Yeah. Thankfully, not you know personality <laughs> changes, but you know you you start to feel it slip, and you wonder. Yeah. With our aging population, we're going to be a bunch of a bunch of demented fools Maybe wandering not. around. Maybe not, though. Maybe not. All right, on to the next. So a little gap. I'm going to come back to some more disease modeling, but first, just a quick jump into this group. A group at UCSD has found an easy and efficient way to make human pluripotent stem cells into bone tissue. And that is just to feed them adenosine, a naturally occurring molecule that's present in the body. So this is Varghese's group at UCSD. What they did is they showed that they control differentiation of human pluripotent stem cells into functional osteoblasts. These are the cells that make bone. They're the bone builders. And they could do this just by adding the single molecule, adenosine, to their growth medium. This is a big deal because, you know, when you're trying to make any type of cell, ask Doug Melton in this review from the MIT Technology Review, he'll tell you. It took 15 years just to figure out sequentially how you get from one cell to the next and the next and the next to get these specialized tissues. So a single shot, you know, a silver bullet to get osteoblast is a big deal. In, just like the cells in the body, the osteoblasts that Varghese's group were able to make, they built bone tissues that had blood vessels. So they were vascularized, which is, makes them amenable to functioning in vivo. And when they were transplanted into mice with bone defects, these osteoblasts formed new bone tissues in vivo. And more than that, they didn't form teratoma, which is the dreadful outcome that we all are afraid of in stem cell uh, therapies. To quote Varghese, it's amazing that a single molecule can direct stem cell fate. We don't need to use a cocktail of small molecules, growth factors, or other supplements to create a population of bone cells from human pluripotent stem cells like induced pluripotent stem cells. So this is another example of using these cells as therapy, and this work could lead to regenerative treatments for patients with critical bone defects and soldiers, maybe, who suffered traumatic bone injuries coming back from, you know, the Gulf or other places affected by war. And, you know, with the world affected by war as it is, There's going to be a lot of candidates for these types of bone regenerative therapies.
0: Yeah. I mean, I hope they figure out how the adenosine signaling actually works to do this because, come on, adenosine, it's a basic molecule. It is involved in so many aspects of cell metabolism. And it's just, I mean, it's hard for me to believe that this is really a silver bullet.
1: I agree with that.
0: I am so skeptical of this.
1: Yeah, well, adenosine triphosphate as you're saying, it's like the it's like the base for everything pretty much.
0: For everything and then, you know, but just as adenosine on its own is I mean, it's a it's a signaling molecule for so many right. different things that it is really hard for me but me to believe that there is no other side effect if you just add adenosine.
1: Agree. Agree. I mean, there you come in. That's a valid criticism. We're going to bring that to Varghese. you got to come with some mechanism, doctor. you got to tell us how this is working.
0: I know. How does it work? work. Yeah. Okay, fine. You can do this in a dish. You can do this in, you know. We need
1: some details. We need more. We need a little bit more. Yeah, but it's nice. It's nice. It's a nice first step.
0: It is. I hope it's a silver bullet,
1: please. Yeah, uh, (laughs) I'm not not counting on it. All right, so now I want to circle back around. I love this idea. This is a lot more like what Shubin is doing. I like to call it, you got to break it to make it, all right? And this is researchers at John Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center. They've created a system to study an aggressive type of medulloblastoma, which is a rare pediatric brain tumor that generally has a very, very poor prognosis. Okay, so while more than 60% of children with medulloblastoma can be effectively treated, One subtype of the disease, this group 3 medulloblastoma, has a survival rate of less than a few years after diagnosis. And the thing is, you know, like most cancers nowadays, what we do, we get in the lab, we study, we been a mouse model, we get that cancer, we figure it out so we can get a personalized approach, get the treatment that will work on that cancer. But genetically accurate laboratory models of group 3 medulloblastoma are really difficult to come by. So what did these researchers do? He said, all right, we can't find a model out there. You know what? We're going to make a model. And in order to do that, they got human neural stem cells, and they genetically engineered them. They replaced the normal genes in this human neural stem cells with these mutated copies that are present in the group 3 medulloblastoma. So they made the tumor. They copied the genotype of the tumor and enforced it on a normal cell. They, made, they broke this system in the way that the tumor or the cancer breaks a normal cell. And then they created a model. They injected these cells into mouse brains. They formed aggressive tumors that spread just like the native disease. And then this group, and this was led by Eric Robb, MD, PhD, pediatric oncologist at Johns Hopkins. They used a computer algorithm known as, get this, disease model signature versus compound variety enriched response. (laughs) What the heck? (laughs) I might have to pull out that book on curses. I'm getting right? a little frustrated. Anyway, the acronym for that is DISCOVER. I mean, clearly they came up with the acronym and then forced a bunch of letters and words yeah. in there. But the, the bottom line here is this DISCOVER program helped identify drugs that might be effective against the disease. And they were able to anticipate using this system a class of drugs known as cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors that might work. And they found one, this drug called palbociclib which is approved for treatment of metastatic breast cancer. And then after testing the, the drug in the mouse models of this group 3 medulloblastoma, they found that the CDK inhibitor, palbococlib, extended median survival of the mice by only, almost 50%, from 25 days to 37 days. So this is a great example, I think. They took a system, they created a cancer, and then they treated it all in a kind of mash-up, of you know genetic engineering animal modeling in silico type analyses and they found a drug that would work and now this is a great candidate to bring into patients with this group 3 medulloblastoma help get these kids well
0: yeah well i hope that it it actually does help to make them well i mean the question with studies like this is the survival increased from 25 to 37 days, but yeah. is that just the length of the study? Is it a longer term if a study goes longer, or is that like a cutoff that the drug just becomes less effective over time?
1: I think they die. Yeah. I think they die. I don't yeah. think that's the cutoff. So, yeah.
0: This is still an animal model, but anything that helps to improve the health of a child and give them a bit longer.
1: When you're one of these kids or we're, you know, one of these kids' parents – one, you'll take it, but also I think the real thing and why this is such an inspiration to me is that you got to have something to say to these patients. Yeah. You know, to say, we don't know, we can't understand. At least you could say, well, you know what? We're going to make your cancer in a dish and we're going to figure it out. Yeah. That's something. You yeah. know, that's something. Yeah. And I think it's great. Oh, just to last a last little bit of scandal. I'm going to try and be quick. Two Nobel Prize judges have been dismissed from the panel at the sides the award, the the Nobel Prize for Medicine, and it's over a scandal over a disgraced stem cell scientist at Karolinska. You know, you hate to see these stories. This is this guy, Paolo Macciarini, who was once considered a pioneer in windpipe transplants, but he was fired after he was found that he was falsifying his resume and misrepresenting his work. You know, this is this great idea of using, especially with these relatively simple organs like the trachea or the bladder, that you can generate a scaffold and seed it with like mesenchymal stem cells or some kind of stem cell that's patient-derived and make the gross architecture of an organ that's simple like this and then transplant in the patient, making organs from scratch. This is such an amazing idea that's actually been put into the mainstream in theory and in practice even. And uh, Paolo Maschirani, sorry about butchering your name there, buddy, but you're a fraud, so I don't feel so bad. Anyway... Everyone associated with him now is feeling the pinch as these two judges have been dismissed from the committee. It's a cautionary tale as to how, you know, scientific misconduct and misrepresentation of your work can have wider consequences, not just to the patients who are really at the butt end of this deal. But, you know, it's, it's a scandal and it's bad for science and these people should not be deciding who the greatest scientists of our time are.
0: When it becomes, you know, a, a personal game of helping out your friends, helping out your colleagues and not about the science, then that's when things suffer. And so I'm glad that this is, you know, radiating out and that more people are being affected by it because it's this kind of public, you know, head rolling right. <laughs> in which people will take notice and maybe it'll happen less often because the patients who died are victims and their families are victims of this misconduct. and additionally. The science as well, because this tracheal regeneration, it's good. Yeah. But to like have the science be misused or misrepresented, yeah. I mean, suddenly it, it, people look at that and say, oh, you know, regenerative medicine, it's not good anymore. You know, we can't trust it. And so things have to be handled in a progressive step-by-step manner. And you can't jump the gun just because you think you got something.
1: For sure. I mean, you can be sure that when people think about trachea transplants now, they're not going to remember the success. They're going to remember two dead patients. So it's it's a tragedy. It's a real bad thing. But that's it. We had some bad news, some encouraging, inspirational news. We ended on a downer. What the heck?
0: Nah, yeah, it just means that someone else is going to win the Nobel Prize this year for something awesome.
1: That's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> I'll tell you that I'm going to go. You know what I do sometimes? I sit in my car. I drove today. I'm going to sit in my car and I'm going to curse really loud at, the, at a stoplight or something to get out <laughs> my frustration. <laughs> you ever do that? Sometimes, you know, especially in New York with these crazy drivers, you just got to you got to let out some curses. <laughs> It's just me, I guess. I'm a weird dude.
0: No, I think the curses are good. That gets that energy out, makes you, gets you energized a little, and it helps you feel a little better. It makes me feel better afterwards.
1: That's my favorite story of the week, <laughs> the curses. Thanks for that, Kiki.
0: You are welcome. You are so welcome. So it is time for us to be done with the roundup, and we are going to move into our interview. And the interview portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell has created a new differentiation kit. It's called the Stem Diff Pancreatic Progenitor Kit. This kit efficiently differentiates human pluripotent stem cells to pancreatic progenitor cells. Relevant to today's interview, where we will be talking about diabetes, the differentiated cells are functional and ready for maturation into insulin-producing cells, either in vitro or after transplantation into mice. And for more information, you can visit www.stemcell.com slash pancreatic kit. Sounds good, huh? Other details about this kit. The differentiated cells co express PDX1 and NKX61, and this is just like in the developing human pancreas, which is cool. So, a neat model cell line there. And it works with multiple human ES and IPS cell lines, and the resulting pancreatic progenitor cells can mature into insulin producing beta cells. The kit directs cells along multiple stages of differentiation, allowing for flexibility in the workflow. And you can stop along the way if you want to isolate cells from the definitive endoderm, the primitive gut tube, or the posterior foregut stages. And so again, you can check out more information about this pancreatic progenitor kit at stemcell.com slash pancreatic kit. Our guest today... Shibing Chen, a faculty member and stem cell biologist at Weill Cornell Medical College. Dr. Chen uses pluripotent stem cells as a tool to investigate diabetes and identify novel platforms to aid in drug discovery. All right, Dr. Chen, it is wonderful to have you here with us today on the Stem Cell Podcast. Can we start by giving the audience a little bit of background about yourself and then the current focus of your lab?
2: Okay, thank you for the invitation. It's really an honor for me. So I was originally trained as a chemist. And, and when I was a graduate student, I started involved in the stem cell field. And at that time, we tried to use small molecular as a tool to control stem cell feed and understand stem cell biology. And then after I graduated, uh, I feel the future of stem cell is really human. So I decided to join the Mountain's lab and we study uh, human embryonic stem cell differentiation and we find a small molecule that can direct human embryonic stem cell and iPA cell differentiation to pancreatic lineage. In 2011, I joined Well Cornell Medical College and started my own lab here. Uh, we are basically interested in two things. One is direct differentiation. We try to use small molecules as a tool to direct human ESL and and IPA cells to the cell feed were interesting. For example, on pancreatic beta cell is one of our major focus. And we're also making other cell types in pancreas. And also some other cell types affected uh, by uh, in-diabetes patients, such as cells in cardio lineage. And mm-hmm. another major focus is the disease modeling part. We try to understand how this genetic factor and environmental factor contribute to the progression of diabetes. And then we want to recapitulate the cellular defect in the petri dish and adapt it to a high-throughput drug screening platform and Mm. perform some screening on that.
1: So, yeah, that was your big splash just now in cell stem cell. But before we get to that, you know, I touched on this recent, just a kind of a lay piece in the MIT Technology Review recently mm-hmm. about your former mentor, Doug Melton. I don't know if you saw it, but it was a nice, I think, portrait of how something goes from concept and the struggles with bringing it to market. And I know one of the first things from the stem cell field that's going to be applied, a lot of people believe, because there's already trials with Viacite and other companies. Yeah. Uh, the first one, of the first thing is going to be cell-based products from pluripotent stem cells for treatment of diabetes. Can you give us a, uh, a kind of where you think the field is now, how long do you think before we'll actually have a product in patients, and what are the real obstacles to getting the diabetic therapies, the cell-based therapies, to work, if that's not too many questions at once.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, but because when we talk about human ESL differentiation to beta cell, of course we talk about transplantation therapy and disease modeling, right? And I kind of agree with you and agree with Doc uh, that, transplantation therapy will be one of the major breakthroughs and one of the major applications to treat diabetes patients. And in 2014, there are two papers published, one by Doug Melton's lab, the other one by Tim Kiefer's lab. They can make something like functional pancreatic beta cell. I I won't say it's mature um, pancreatic beta cell, but it's very close. And then their huge effort put it on that and as you mentioned, there are clinical trials ongoing. I think it's very promising. I don't have a timeline for that, but the way I see it is definitely there are several obstacles that need to be uh, overcome. One is the uh, immuno attack, I think it's, immuno attack is a problem for all transplantation by its particular. Uh, severe for type 1 diabetes because they have two uh, waves of immune attack, right? One is uh, for immunotransplantation itself, but in the second part, type 1 diabetes is, is an um, disease. So the system will also um, attack the beta cells itself. And another problem, I guess, is how can we make sure this transplant beta cells can survive in the human body for long-term for long-term. And then I guess several people try to develop different ways to uh, treat it, for example, to induce oxygen and to uh, improve the blood vessel system, which is your expertise, Dylan. So, (laughs) and then, yeah, I think people are still trying to develop different ways to, to solve this problem. And
1: what do you think about these sleeve ideas where they encase them in something to like physically, a physical barrier that prevents uh-huh. the immune cells from infiltrating the graft. I've heard mixed results, but that's what viacite has out there. Is there a reason why that shouldn't work?
2: I'm not an expert on that, but one thing I don't really understand is that the beta cells still need to see the blood system, to still need to sense the blood vessels, right? Even though you can add some escapulation materials there, but they still need to see the blood vessel. And then how to solve that problem, I guess I need some um, expertise on bioengineering part. Yeah. I see. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: So can you start walking us through now that we've had a little discussion about kind of where things are and the obstacles that are in place? Can we transition and get walked through your latest paper?
2: Sure. I mean, there's already several therapies to treat diabetes. And we know it's expensive disease. It's a very common disease. And most of the treatment currently focus on alleviating the syndrome. They basically try to solve the hyperglycemia. One point I think is underappreciating the diabetes drug development part is the genetic factors. I mean, different people have diabetes due to different reasons, so the genetic factor definitely play an important role. And then, before I talk about our work, I want to um, mention that our work is really built on two recent major uh, advances. One is a CRISPR-based gene editing, which makes it possible to precisely study the biological function of each individual gene and recapitulate these gene-specific defects. And the other one is something we already talked about, uh, the development of new protocol to make like functional pancreatic beta cells. And after development of, of these techniques and many labs, including ourselves, uh, we are working on inherited form of diabetes, which makes sense and interesting because All these transcript factors related with an inherited form of diabetes, they play a very important role in human development. So it's relatively easy to recapitulate the defects. However, the inherited form of diabetes is very, very rare, which counts for less than 5% of the whole diabetes population. So then we want to know whether we can work on something, maybe they have broader impact. And genome-wide association study has identified more than 80 locus of gene or Uh, related with type 2 diabetes. However, the problem is the biological function of these genes are largely unknown. And there is definitely a strong need to develop a new platform to study these genes. So that's where our work comes from. And since this is our first project on this topic, so we start from some genes that are pretty well established. Um, KCNJ11, KCNQ1, CDKL1. So this gene has been shown to be associated with type 2 diabetes in the first wave of GWAS back in 2007. And it was already confirmed in uh, many GWAS studies. So what we did is we used CRISPR-based gene editing to knock out these three genes separately. And then we studied the differentiation function and survival of this knockout out human ESL-derived pancreatic beta-like cells. And we find that none of these genes affect differentiation which is kind of expected because if they affect differentiation, we might expect them to be uh, related with neonatal diabetes instead of of type 2 diabetes. And when we study the function of these cells, knockout cells, we find that the KCNG11, KCNQ1 knockout cells have impaired insulin secretion. Since both genes encode a Potosin channel, and Potosin channel is very important for the insulin secretion per se, so it's also like expected results. And we also find that CDK1 knockout cells they can secrete insulin, but they cannot respond well, so they, are, they still have some functional defect. And then we transplant these cells in vivo, and we find these cells also show um, impairability to secrete human insulin and fail to maintain glucose homeostasis. So here I want to uh, mention a little bit about this model. We, we call it humanized mice model, although some people don't like it, or you can call it like mouse with carrying human beta cells. I think it's quite important for disease modeling and drug testing because in these cells, with the mouse beta cells was already dis- were already destroyed by the chemical called striptosin. So these mice are totally dependent on human pancreatic beta cell to ma- maintain glucose homeostasis. And we know that diabetes is a very complicated disease. It involves multiple organs. And of course, this mouse model are still not human yet, but at least it's, we consider as a bridge to cover the gap between mouse model and human. it's basically gives us opportunity to study human beta cell function in the context of other um, TCO organs involved in diabetes. So we feel pretty lucky that we also see the defect of these knockout cells in this model. And then we move, so all these studies are still on the um, regular culture condition. Then we move to disease condition, and we find that... If the CTKL1 is knocked out in these cells, the cell becomes very uh, sensitive to glucotoxicity and lipotoxicity, which are shown to be the major environmental factor contribute to beta cell dysfunction in type 2 diabetes. And this pretty much our work on the disease modeling part and since I came from a chemical ba- a screening background, so we decided to, by now we run some drug screening to see if we find some interesting. And then the postdoc basically adapts the platform to like a 3T4-well platform and then screen a FDA-approved drug library, or, which includes around less than 2,000 drugs. And we find one small molecule called T5224. is an AP1 inhibitor that can rescue the CDKL1 knock in tubes hypersensitivity to glucotoxicity or lipotoxicity. It can also rescue um, CDKL1-induced pancreatic beta cell dysfunction, both in vitro and in vivo. And then eventually we did some mechanistic study. We find that cdkl one now is activate activated c-gene and false pathway. And since T5224 is the c-gene and um, false inhibitor, so it can perfectly explain why this drug works well.
1: And uh, uh, to rescue the loss of cdkl one induced beta cell dysfunction. Wow. Nice. So summarize, you created the mutations that were associated with genome-wide association. You showed that there was a phenotype. You screened mm-hmm. for drugs that could solve it, and then you showed how those drugs worked. That's amazing, Schumann. That's what that's like a whole career. and right. you wrap that up into one paper. What's the next move there? Like, I mean, is this a drug that is amenable? Has it been in any other trials, or is it amenable to testing? And if so, what are the patients that you would try that drug on?
2: This drug was originally developed in Japan based on a 3D commuter modeling. And right now it's in clinical trial, two to treat the uh, arduresis patients in both Japan and the U.S., I believe. Mm. And we're quite excited about that, but I don't think we, are, we can directly jump into clinical application. <laughs> For now. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. So before we move there, I think there are several things we are considering right now. So first is a gene because our current disease model is based on the gene knockout; it's complete loss of this gene. But since all these genes identified from GIWA, a very rare patient carries a mutation that induces complete gene knockout. It's more like some mutations induce the loss of function of the protein.
1: Right. So, right.
2: Yeah. So right now we are trying to do some gene knock-in to knock-in this CDKL1 related with SNPs and to evaluate how the SNPs affects the beta cell function. And uh, we're pretty positive on that. We're pretty confident that they will induce some dysfunction. But I guess the severity may be slightly different. So the right. dysfunction induced by SNP may be not as severe as complete gene knockout.
1: So if we talk about these patients that have that are identified in these GWAS studies. They have type 2 diabetes that's probably induced a lot by environment, right? Yes. So they're like yes. at risk, but they, mm-hmm. having the SNP doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to develop type 2 diabetes if they have a healthy lifestyle, I guess?
2: Exactly, exactly. I think type 2 diabetes is uh, one type of disease that involves both genetic factors and environmental factors. And then by I think we have some evidence to, uh, at least right now, we have a platform to evaluate these genetic factors and we know which genetic factor might be important, which might not be less important. So at least the patient can have the information how much they are at risk for this disease. For example, if they have any uh, CDKL1 mutation, maybe they should be more careful about their lifestyle.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. See, the cynic in me is always like, okay, so now we're going to figure out the mechanism and we're going to say, okay, you want to live a terrible lifestyle, we'll give you this pill. The CFOS <laughs> inhibitor, and there you can eat all the hamburgers you want. Although I'm sure that's not the reality. I'm just such a cynic. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah,
2: but uh, another thing I think well, we're also doing is that uh, the drugs, because um, I mean, we're quite, whether this is the drug to treat the loss of CDK or one induced defects or not, uh, we're not sure. i most say yes for now. Uh, we're actually more excited to find that c one false as a pathway as a drug target. Mm-hmm. So I currently screen a panel of the gene false inhibitor or even NF-KABA-B inhibitors to see uh, which one may work better than this compound or, yeah, something like that.
0: Are there any plans at all to, I mean, you're talking about the SNPs and looking at these single nucleotide (laughs) mutations, you know, because these mutations lead to differential expression of the effect of the disease. And so whether it, you know, how strongly it produces in response to what particular environmental triggers, like Dalen brought up lifestyle and diet. I mean, you could probably take mice or rats, this model that you have, and induce particular mutations and see how they respond to different diets.
2: Yeah. Right. So environmental factor is something actually we well, are very interested in that. And then we, we actually uh, perform another chemical screening recently. So it's like not like a drug screening, but it's on the opposite side. So we screen around 2,000 compounds that's uh, very common uh, in our life, such as pesticides mm. or something in the diet or something, I mean, we can't get access every day. And we indeed find uh, two small molecules that can basically induce some beta cell uh, death. And then it's a different project, but we find that some patients, they carry type 1, type 2 diabetes gene mutations, they turn out to be more sensitive to this drug treatment. Oh, wow. So this, you can consider like beta cell toxin. So,
0: yeah. So in, in terms of, I mean, we're talking about the, the article about Doug Melton that Daylin brought up earlier and the, the whole landscape of drug discovery, of treatment, of transplantation. How does your particular finding with this inhibitor drug mm-hmm. or the class of drugs and how they, how they work, how is this really going to impact the landscape of diabetes drug discovery?
2: Diabetes treatment basically focusing on um... Elevate the syndrome, right? So they want to control the blood glucose level. And one point that maybe can kind of underappreciated is the cause of the disease. And then they go to the idea of precession therapy, or you can call it personalized medicine. And the personalized medicine is very hot topic in cancer, but not too much in the metabolic syndrome yet. And I guess a major challenge for precession therapy is that the traditional drug development was not really designed to target any specific gene. So it can be kinase inhibitor, passive inhibitor, but not really gene specific. So, and the, the way I see the precision therapy is we basically have, at least in metabolic syndrome, is we should have a panel of drugs that target different gene specific defects. And then based on the patient information that the doctor can choose the drug to use. And then for our study, I, I hope it's a pretty early model or maybe one of the first models that can show we, we have a pretty good platform to screen for the drugs and to identify the drug that can target these specific genes. Then w- what we're doing right now is we kind of try to expand our um, gene knockout lines. We're trying to knock out a panel of type 1, type 2 diabetes related genes and we recapture the defect and then we perform the drug discovery on that.
1: Yeah, I think you're right about that. You know, we've been covering a lot of stories about disease modeling. And I think you're right, drilling down now, the stories are getting deeper and deeper. We just covered one about looking at um, cardiovascular disease risk as like a pilot way. It was by Joseph Wu's lab at Stanford. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's this idea that you're you're talking about, about taking all these GWAS studies where there's literally hundreds and hundreds of genes that are associated with disease but it's really hard to figure out how that how they might play is that your strategy are you going like down the line you said there were 80 do you think that we're really going to cuz you can now with crispr right do you think that it's really a, a matter of systematically peeling off one of those genes at a time is that your approach or you're just going for like the low hanging fruit in, in the outset
2: well i think That's something we should really take advantage of the human ESL and CRISPR genes editing, right? Because one advantage is the throughput. And with current efficient CRISPR-based gene editing, we can afford to maybe knock out 10 or 20 genes in one or two months. So Mm -hmm. uh, we are trying to do that way. So we we try to uh, adapt it to, like, we cannot call it high throughput, like a middle throughput platform to systematically evaluate this type 1 type 2 associated genes. And then for our case, since we run a lot of chemical screening, so it's relatively easy to adapt to the... Once we can see some cellular defect, it's very easy to adapt to the drug screening platform.
1: You make it sound easy, but I doubt that it's... Easy. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and this is just a technical question. In terms of using CRISPR, doing this in a dish in a lab, I can see this being an easy, you know, run it through the lab, keep running a bunch of different lines uh, even simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Are you raising these lineages of mice in your own lab? Or are you working with someplace like, uh, you know, the Jackson Lab to create these mouse
2: lineages? Yeah, we are doing it in-house now.
0: In-house, okay.
2: Yeah. So we mainly use immunodeficient mice and yeah. then we basically transplant the cells under the kidney and we destroy the mouse beta cells. And it's so far works pretty well.
0: Okay. I'm just wondering in, in terms of, um, you know, as you go through these things, I'm sure other researchers are going to be interested mm-hmm. in this p- particular knockouts that you're coming up with, you know, for, for multiple purposes beyond just the drug discovery that you're talking about.
2: I, I believe so. I believe so. And as it's maybe what will we'll be a, I think it would be interesting to have it like a platform that can be easily accessible to other researchers.
1: Yeah. What do you think about monkeys chewing? I mean, it would have to be. I think amina- it's really amina- cool.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they have now, they're going to make these skid monkeys. Do they have to be skid monkeys and go through this kidney capsule and the whole ablation? To make your system, It's it's that you have to do all those things.
0: What's a skid monkey? Like immunodeficient. The combined (laughs) immunodeficient,
1: sorry. I mean, you would have to have an immunocompromised monkey in order to translate or move up the the ladder into primates. Is that right? Is that why you're not doing primates already?
2: We don't have money. (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, monkey is very expensive. So I I was just joking. But uh, scientifically, I think the the immunodeficient Monkey will be very very useful model, but right now uh, we can also give the monkey some immunodeficient drugs to basically facilitate the transplantation process. Mm. Uh, I think it will be very useful too to develop immunodeficient monkey. But we can still move forward before we uh, we can still do something before we have that model.
1: Right, you weren't lying. These monkeys they cost like I think for the the macaque, sixty thousand dollars to get the monkey and the housing costs are, are over a hundred thousand dollars a year per monkey. So yeah, you are lying, it's very, <laughs> very expensive. And you're working so well with the mouse. So don't don't change a thing, Shibane.
2: Yeah, I, I think for beta cells there are some advantage, uh, because beta cell pretty much can be function anywhere you're transplanted. Mm-hmm. So you lessen your mouse will be a very good model. But if you work on some other cell type, for example heart, uh, you might need some model close to human.
0: Like a pig.
2: Yeah, pig or monkey. Yeah.
0: Yeah, in, in terms of the general model, this model that you're using in the lab and uh, the genome-wide associations and everything, what other areas are you working on or are, do you see that this type of model is really promising for?
2: So we have pretty broad interest uh, on diabetes. Yeah. So definitely Pancreatic beta cell is one direction we are pursuing, and uh, we are also trying to study other cell types involved in, well, in uh, diabetes. One cell type we are working on is the uh, neuroendocrine cells, GLP-1 positive cells. So it's a relatively rare cell type in the gut, but it's very important because when the gut when people take food and the gut will secrete GLP-1 and GLP-1 will stimulate beta cell to secrete insulin, and GLP-1 agonist is right now uh, on the market now for the diabetes treatment. However, we really don't know too much about this cell type because it's very, very difficult to get. So human ESL S3 gave us this opportunity. So we develop a protocol uh, that we can get. I won't say GLP-1 positive cells specifically, but neuroendocrine cells in general, a uh, pretty uh, efficient protocol. And we are trying to do some co-culturing with this neuroendocrine cells and beta cells to see how they interact with each other. So it's like uh, instead of single cell type disease modeling, we are uh, kind of move next step to the uh, cell-cell interaction.
1: Yeah, I guess we forget that the, the, everyone thinks about the pancreas, but the real organs interplay is complex between the brain and the stomach, even I'm sure the mouth and cell all the, all the parts that play in the digestive system.
2: Yeah so so that's the reason I think the this kind of humanized mice will be like a bridge for now because to fill the gap because we can generate each organ step by step from human EA cells but it definitely take time and if we want to put them together it will be a complicated system to study but this immunodeficient mice actually gave us a Platform that we can stepwise replace the mouse tissues with human. In the meanwhile, all these tissues will still in the whole context of this complicated disease. Right. Yeah,
0: and you mentioned when we were uh, in in conversation briefly before we started the interview. You mentioned that you're getting into some uh, an area that is a hot news topic these days, Zika.
2: Yeah, so so we are interested in that because. Of at the beginning of this year, we basically published a protocol to make uh, trophoblasts from human embryonic stem cells. Uh, we find a BMP agonist that can promote the generation of uh, trophoblasts. Then we read these Zika stories, and we feel one big question in the Zika field is how this Zika virus was passed from the mom to the baby. Because actually the placenta is supposed to be play a protective role during pregnancy. Yeah, And then there are some... Several papers published on the uh, Zika, on the trophoblast on the Zika, and the data is kind of So It's based on the current publication, the later stage trophoblast might kind of protect the uh, fetus from Zika infection, but the early stage may be more sensitive. But this all based on the primary uh, trophoblast. Uh, so what we did is we basic uh, trophoblast from human embryonic stem cells, and then we try different stage of trophoblast development. And we find at particular stage of trophoblast development, they are very sensitive to Zika infection. The infection can be 100%. It's it's amazing. Wow. Yeah, then we are basically testing in the mouse model to see whether it's happening the same thing in vivo. And then related with that is some correlation we try to set out with New York Stem Cell Foundation because they have a big patient IPSL library around 100 patients, they have different genetic background and they have all this information about their genetic background. And now what we want to know is whether a different patient they respond to Zika in different ways. I think that is it. We believe that is the case. But what we want to do is we want to infect the um, patient, the trophoblast derived from human ESL, IPSL, carrying different genetic background to see which genetic background may make it more accessible, more sensitive to Zika infection.
0: Dalen and I talk about it a lot on on the show. And I think the more labs that are working on Zika from different angles, it's just going to give us more information and yeah. just help us understand this virus a lot better.
2: I agree. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I can't wait to hear when you're further along in this project, we'll have you back on to talk about it. Sure. <laughs> Hopefully soon. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been just a, just a really informative and wonderful interview. I, I've loved speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Okay, thank you. And uh, thank yeah. you, Dana.
0: Thank
1: you, girl. Of course. Thanks, Shubang. It was a great talk. All right, Kiki, that was a great interview with Shuban. She's a great, great friend of the program, a great friend of mine, great friend of Stem Cells. She's doing great stuff. What do you think, Kiki?
0: Uh, I think it's just, her work's fabulous, and being able to do what she does is really going to push push the science forward. There are so many people suffering from diabetes. It's just, this is good.
1: Yeah, and, you know, we, in an era of uh, these GWAS studies, you know, these genome-wide association studies, we have all this genomic information. There's so many people in the world now. We're getting all their whole genome sequence. There's all these d- disease-associated, you know, genes, but we don't really know what they do. She's really fi- cracked it. She's figured out a way to get that into a pliable system in vitro, and clearly the results speak for themselves. But, uh, oh, you know, enough about the great things that are going on. We're going to kind of, it's time to complain. It's time all to right. get upset. Right. We're going to do a, a bit of a rant, all right? And the rant today is going to be about what's going on. With the pharma industry, I mean, we all know there's a lot of people cashing in on all manner of ways, but it's kind of egregious now. What's going on with these crazy, you know, 600,000% increases in prices for these things that are, you know, used to be accessible and now they're, they're being priced exorbitantly? The EpiPens, this, you know, what's that uh, guy, that scumbag pharma guy? <laughs>
0: Martin Shkreli, oh, from, uh, he, he was the CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals, increased the price of a, an antiparasitic drug that treated toxoplasma gondii infection. It's also used for HIV infection as part of the AIDS cocktail of drugs. And he increased the price of this drug, Daraprim. I don't remember exactly how much the percent increase was when he became CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals, but it went up to like $750 a pill. At first, it was much, much higher than that. And then they decreased it slightly. (laughs) Discount. Discount, yeah. But it's still $750 a pill for the Daraprim. And now what is it, the insulin Injection,
1: EpiPen, yeah, the allergy. Oh my god! I just want to. Does, is anybody recognizing? Is anyone saying this is anything but a money grab? Is there any logic to this that isn't just increased profits?
0: I've heard the logic is that you know before these drugs become generic and everybody can make them, that these companies are recouping their research costs. But I can't believe why the sudden increase in price for these drugs when they've been on the market for so long already. I don't understand it. It seems like a money boggles grab. It boggles, boggles the mind. It's like, okay, everybody's going to have to pay for this. The insurance companies are going to have, it's a, it's a, it's a freaking messed up system where the end it's criminal it's criminal. And I'm, I'm sorry. Pharmaceutical companies who are doing the research who need to recoup your costs. It's not that you're not recouping your costs. You're lining the pockets of your investors, And this economic system is the most bull. uh,
1: Kiki, uh, I've never seen you like this. I love it. You're ranting hard right now.
0: Oh, this is a hot button issue for me. I don't get it. I do not get it. Where health is involved, we should not be putting money in investors' pockets.
1: Let's be generous.
0: Yeah. This is helping people live Just live. Right. And I mean, something like an EpiPen is going to help someone live. It's not live a healthier life. It's
1: live. It's not a luxury It's not a luxury. No. (laughs) This isn't elective. This is I want to breathe.
0: Yes. So, okay. (laughs) All
1: right. So we got that out. We're angry. Kiki's angrier than me for the first (laughs) time. So everybody needs to watch out.
0: (laughs) Some heads are going to roll. No. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. What do you think about this, everybody? Do you agree? Do you not agree? What do you think? Should the economic free market be at play when things like people's health are involved?
1: Mm -hmm. No.
0: Should the market regulate itself? No. I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear. Send us your ideas, your thoughts, other rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email StemCellPodcast at (sighs) gmail.com. I'm going to breathe. We are done. (laughs) It's time for me to end this episode and go cool off. This concludes episode 74 of the Stem Cell Podcast. What great conversation, a great interview, great stories today. Be sure to tune in for our next episode, which will be as good, if not better. Dalen, I'm looking forward to next time.
1: Me too, Kiki. Have a good one.